Well, let me add my welcome to Ken's. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. As you've heard, we're uh, moving through this uh, letter of 1 Peter, uh, which is jam-packed with uh, a lot of big things to think about. And we come to this really rich section in uh, chapter 2 tonight. Uh, so let me pray for us as we come to this part and ask that God will really um, speak through his word to us tonight and apply it to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We want to acknowledge that you are a speaking God who have revealed yourself to us in your word and ultimately in the person of your Son. And we acknowledge that you have empowered your word to work in our lives as your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds. And we ask that you might do that great work in us again tonight that you would continue to shape us and mould us, conform us to the likeness of Jesus. And in particular tonight, to appreciate afresh uh, your wonderful design uh, of your people, the church, and how we should think about it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, community is a word that's thrown around a lot today by politicians, by community leaders and so forth. But it's often one of those words that's very intangible. It's hard to quite get a handle on. And that's because if we live in a city like Wollongong, uh, it can often be hard to find a sense of belonging, a sense of community. People come and go all the time. It's a very individualistic kind of age that we live in. And so we tend to refer to communities, at least in our cities, as often just ethnic groupings within those cities. Or else communities are something that happen out in rural regions, you know, where there's a, a clear geographical boundary where people actually interconnect and relate with one another day by day in their local town. But in a city like Wollongong, it can be hard. And we're getting the message all the time in our media, particularly in our advertising, that we're just to see ourselves as an individual. We're a consumer above all. And we're just a person that may buy this or that product. And so it's all about what we can do or get for ourselves. But the problem is so often we go and consume such products and then we bring them home, as it were, pull up our um, drawbridge and hide in our castle or house and hardly speak to the neighbours or those that surround us. And then wonder why we struggle with the sense of belonging or community. We have this repressed desire to belong. We want to connect. God has wired us to be relational beings where we just long for friendship and connection with people. And so if we're not finding it in our neighbourhood, if we don't sense it more generally in our society, then we go looking for it. And is it any wonder that people are often seeking to find it in their local sporting club or some other community group where they get together with like-minded people that like the thing that they do and then find some sense of belonging in that group? And so sporting clubs and other groups play on this desire all the time. I don't know if you've seen that in the advertising. Let me take rugby league. I know that doesn't interest everyone, but the St. George Illawarra Dragons NRL team are constantly trying to recruit members. They want to get 15 and 20,000 members each year. And so they'll have slogans like, Red V is a part of me. And their banners will have words like, connect, belong, commit. Drawing on people to want to feel part of something. Now, for myself, I don't make sense to many people around this area. 
I'd have to be up in the northern beaches because I go for the Manly Seagulls and everybody hates them. You always go for your team and whoever's playing against Manly, right? And so we're known as the team that nobody likes. And of course, Manly play on that and so they'll have signs when you go to their games. You know, everybody hates us, but we hate you as well. That's the sense. It's a siege mentality, us against the world. Join our community and be hated by everybody. How good is that? Well, there's these kind of tribal things, isn't there, that happen in sporting teams. But unfortunately, when we start to talk about a church community, so often people are a bit cooler about things. They're not quite so enthusiastic as they get about their sporting club or the local surf club or the dance club that their children go to that they feel a part of. There's a poem that reflects some of that struggle for a sense of belonging and community in church life that goes this way. To dwell above with saints we love, or that will be grace and glory. But to be below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Now that negative assessment of Christian community may sadly fit for some of you tonight. Um, I don't want to downplay the fact that people can have a bad experience in a local church, and that can be really jarring and painful and can leave a legacy in our life. But when the, church, when the church is acting as the Bible teaches, it's a community that is second to none. That's what God calls his people to. And the question I want us to consider today is a fundamental one. What is this community that is called God's church? Or if you like, what is our collective identity as a church? What is the church's collective identity? If we've come to faith in Jesus, what is it that we're a part of? Well, first answer to that question tonight is this. It's a gathering built on Jesus. The church is a gathering built on Jesus. Have a look again at verses 4 to 6 of 1 Peter 2. Peter writes, As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. So here's the Apostle Peter using the metaphor of a building to talk about God's church, his people. And having watched lots of uh, renovation shows in the last few years, largely through the influence of my wife, uh, particularly her favourite, Fixer Upper, um, I, I've heard lots of discussions about different aspects of buildings, but rarely do you have a discussion about a cornerstone in such shows. It, it's kind of an old word or something we don't talk about a lot. Notice that we're told that Jesus can be likened to a living stone, verse 4, or a precious cornerstone, verse 6. Now, a cornerstone is the first stone laid. It's the crucial foundation block on which the rest of the building is aligned to. You know, your plumb line, your measure of whether your walls are straight is determined by this marking stone right at the beginning. And in the same way, the foundation of the church, Peter is saying, is Jesus because it's his death, it's his resurrection from the dead on the first Easter over 2,000 years ago which wins forgiveness for human beings who by nature reject their creator God. And so in Jesus, we have a substitute who 
dies in our place to pay for our rejection and then rises from the dead to demonstrate that his payment worked and is declared Lord over all. But you see, for his work to be applied to an individual, for us to be accepted by God, to be included in Christ's church, we need to receive this payment, accept this payment by Jesus on our behalf. And if we do so, we're adopted into his spiritual family. We become a part of the church because he's the foundation of his gathered people that meet around him and for his sake. So as a result, notice in the building metaphor that continues in verses 4 and 5 that every believer can be described as a living stone too. You know, as we are included in Jesus' spiritual house by faith in his sacrificial death, we're not simply believers who come into a living relationship with God just personally. No, we're brought into a spiritual community. We become part of a church, a gathering. That's what the word church means. Ecclesia in the Greek means a gathering, a congregation. And so as individual stones, we're being built together into Christ's house or the church. We're part of this greater whole. And that's a theme that's just replayed over and over and over in the New Testament. The end of Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, it's a big theme. Elsewhere, 1 Corinthians and so on. And that's almost a shock to us because we live in an age that's so individualistic and yet the Bible wants to talk always about us being part of a group, talking corporately. Now, there's another problem too. I think that this building metaphor is sometimes a cause of confusion today because we tend to refer to buildings like this one as churches when the church is actually a gathering of people, a community of believers. And so we need to keep reminding ourselves, we often know this truth, but we've got to keep reminding ourselves that the bricks and mortar that we sit in are just a rain shelter for the church, for God's people to gather in. It's unimportant compared to the people that sit within it. And notice in this metaphor that the spiritual house is spoken of as being made up of living stones, you and I. It's a living, breathing group of people. And so rather than saying, you know, I attend this certain building, we should say, I belong to the gathering of people that God has put together in Wollongong Baptist or elsewhere if your church home is somewhere else and you're visiting tonight. But I think greater than any confusion over the use of the word church is our struggle, as I mentioned, to grasp the nature of Christian community. Our secular society, as I mentioned earlier, always wants to put things in terms of individual expectations, put things in consumer terms. And so when we come to think about the church, what we tend to do because of that training that's put into us all the time is we look at it as an organisation that I might receive something from. And so I go as a consumer to the church and I say, what will they offer me? What programs do they have? Will I like the singing? Do they have good things for my kids? If not, I want to go and pick another one that'll do what I'm looking for as a consumer. So Christians are drawn into talking this way about church community so often. But in his article, From Lord to Label, How Consumerism Undermines Our Faith, the writer Sky Jathani says this, When we approach Christianity as consumers rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, as an interpretive set of beliefs and values, well, Christianity just becomes one more brand we consume to express our identity. 
And as a result, choosing a church today isn't merely about finding a community to live out my Christian faith among. It's about church shopping to find a congregation that best expresses me. This drives Christian leaders then to differentiate their church by providing more of the features that people want. After all, in a consumer culture, the customer, not Christ, is king. Well, is that a fair assessment? I guess I want to say, as a pastor, that this has been a struggle for the church for the last three or four or more decades. It's a big thing today. That's because of the age we live in. It's a challenge for Christ's church. Instead of asking questions like, what programs do they have? What will suit me? We need to see ourselves as belonging to a family where I come and grow together, where I give all of my life in service with them that I might benefit and bless others. You see, the church is not a snack vending machine. You know, it produces products for me. Rather, it's a spiritual family that I do life with. And when it's operating well, it'll be the closest family that I will know, and it's a family that will extend into eternity. So if we're to think rightly about church community, it'll help us to think about a really important application that comes out of verse 5. Did you notice in that verse that Christians are those who have been not only brought into Christ's church, but they're described as priests who offer spiritual sacrifices? I mean, sacrifice is Old Testament language, right? This is uh, temple imagery. It seems out of place. What sacrifices do we need? Jesus comes along as our once-for-all sacrifice, and he makes the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete. So what are these New Testament sacrifices that believers are called to make? What is Peter talking about? Well, he doesn't really unpack it in this passage. He just refers to it in passing. But as we look at the New Testament... This word sacrifice is used in a number of places to be spoken of in these terms. So, for example, such sacrifices are identified as the offering of our bodies to God in service. Romans 12 verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Sometimes it's referred to as the giving of gifts to enable the spread of the gospel. Philippians 4.18, Paul's talking about how they're sacrifices the people offer, which is actual financial contribution to help him share the message more broadly. It's about the singing of praises in Hebrews 13 verse 15. Sacrifices acceptable to God are praising him. You see how broad this language is. In Hebrews 13 16, these sacrifices that we can make are about doing good and sharing our possessions with other people in need. Notice, too, that a lot of those things are collective things that we can do best together, like praising God or serving the needs in our community. Or they're things that we really need one another to spur us on to do it more and more. Now, while each of us are responsible in the end for our own response to God's grace in our life, we need to see ourselves as part of a community. We're responding, we're serving together. It's not just about me and God, as if no one else is in the room. The collective nature, this is the first step of our identity in Christ. It's a gathering founded on Jesus. But secondly, it's a gathering that's trusting in Jesus. 
Secondly, our collective identity is that we're a gathering that are trusting, continuing to trust in Jesus. It sounds foundational, but notice how Peter states in verses 6 to 8. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Notice that there's a stark choice to make here. As God looks down at the world, he only sees two categories of people. There are those who have trusted in Jesus, who have believed in him, as Peter says, or there are those who have rejected Christ. All other categories fade away. And notice, therefore, all people are not automatically included in Christ's church. Sometimes we talk about the church so broadly that anyone that walks through the door is belonging Well, not strictly speaking. Sure, the doors are always open. We want to welcome everybody. It's all about including people. But notice Peter's language here. You know, it's not that somebody who once went to a scripture lesson in school and heard something about Jesus is part of Christ's eternal church. It's not like somebody who once had a Christian friend who mentioned something or somebody who might have attended a Christian school and heard a bit about God or even the person who occasionally comes to church. Maybe they visited Easter and Christmas. You could do all of those things not to have been included in Christ's church, the gathering of those who are his. To be growing as a part of this spiritual house, to be included in this gathering of Christians, notice we have to have placed our trust in Jesus in verse 6. More strongly in verse 8, it's those who have obeyed the message. What message is he talking about? Well, in the context of 1 Peter 1 and 2, it's the message of the gospel, of Jesus dying on the cross and then rising on the third day in payment of our sin and, and calling us to a new life as a result so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we now live for Jesus, who is actually in charge. And so if a person has really acknowledged their need of forgiveness, has actually given over the reins of their life to Christ so that he's in charge of all their thoughts and words and actions, well, yes, they are part of God's people. And we're told in verse 6 that such people will never be put to shame. Although Jesus continues to be rejected by many people today, there'll be those who believe in him and will never ultimately be disappointed or embarrassed. Their faith is not in vain. If you're a believer here tonight, you don't need to be concerned about the society around you. There'll be those who mock Christ, who are not interested in anything that he has to offer. But you will stand before God. And it's your response that's important And let me say to you that you are precious in God's eyes, just as precious as his son. God will honour his son, the chosen cornerstone. But he will also honour those who are in Christ by faith. And you'll never be put to shame. But in contrast, notice, for others, Jesus, the cornerstone, is a stumbling block. He's an offence to them. The message of needing to be saved of somehow being unworthy, of not being able to do it ourselves, is an offence 
to so many people. And so they disobey or they reject the message of salvation, Peter says. And so the metaphor of Jesus as the cornerstone is no longer precious. He's, a, he's just a block that they trip over. It makes them fall because they reject the message of rescue. Now, it's not like what we see in our society today was any different 2,000 years ago. Have a look at these words from the Apostle Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Jews demand signs, says Paul. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. Well, so often that's still what we see, isn't it? We're not to be put off by those around us. It doesn't matter what others might respond. Their derision towards you if you've come to trust in Jesus. We don't want to miss God's rescue plan. So I guess I want to ask tonight, in a group this size, there'll be some who are not sure where they stand with Jesus. Where are you standing tonight? Let me paint a picture through a story. It helps us to see our need. On October the 14th, 1987, there was an 18-month-old girl, Jessica McClure, in Texas, in the United States, who was playing in her aunt's backyard. Her mother, Reba, walked away for a few minutes to answer a phone call, and she came back, and her daughter was missing. She'd fallen down a well in the backyard, an abandoned well, and she got stuck down this crevice 22 feet under the ground. Well, rescue operations came into full swing almost immediately. And with people descending on this small town of Midland in Texas that was really stricken by the recession at this point in the 80s, also with them came CNN and a whole bunch of media to cover it. And it became round-the-clock coverage that was seen all over the United States as people were glued to their sets about what is going to happen to baby Jessica. And so they saw as they got round-the-clock coverage that there she was underground, sleeping at times, crying at others, singing songs, asking for her mother. They watched as emergency workers piped down fresh air into this very narrow well and then eventually burrowed through solid rock next to her because they couldn't get down this crevice to her, created a tunnel beside her to get across and eventually get her out of here. 58 hours it took. And when she was eventually hauled, frightened but alert, out of her cramped, dark prison, this photograph was taken, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And she underwent a whole heap of surgeries. She lost part of her foot due to loss of circulation in trauma down there. But she went on to live a happy childhood, indeed a happy adult life. She's married with several children of her own living in Texas today. But that future that she has had would never have happened if somebody had not reached down into that well and got her out. There was no way that 18-month-old was going to get out of there. And I want to say to you tonight, it's the same with our rejection of God. You can't do it your way. We're powerless to save ourselves from the consequences of sin, which is death and ultimately separation from God. We need to accept outside intervention. The stakes are too high to be proud and to say, look, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need your help. Thank you, Jesus. 
like an 18-month-old stuck down a well, we can't fix the problem and time is actually running out. So let me encourage you, if you're not sure where you stand tonight when it comes to the person of Jesus, please chat with somebody. I'd love to talk to you. Speak with a friend that you came with or that you know. Don't go off without hearing further about God's love for you. That brings me to a a third and final answer. What is the collective identity of God's people? Well, finally, it's a gathering precious to God. It's a gathering which is so precious to God. Notice again what Peter records in verses 9 and 10. That you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, if a person does accept Jesus as their saviour, they are included by faith into his church. And they're part of a community of believers that has an amazing identity. Notice the four terms used here to describe the status of Christians before God the Father, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I mean, these four name tags, if you like, are hugely surprising. If you were somebody from a Jewish background reading this letter in the first century, you would be gobsmacked. How in the world can the Apostle Peter apply terms that only related to the special people of Israel, God's old covenant people, and say that that is now the identity of God's new covenant people, the church? Because notice where these words came from. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. God, speaking to Moses and the people of Israel, says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You see how the Apostle Peter here has lifted these terms that apply to Israel and he makes this momentous claim about the church whose members are trusting in Jesus, the promised Messiah who was to come. The church is a chosen people or race, not by physical descent. They're not of the bloodline of Abraham, but they are of the seed of Abraham by simply trusting in the one that was to come, Christ. So God's people are those who believe in Jesus. And God's people are also a royal priesthood, we're told. You know, again, unlike Israel, where it was a very select group within the nation that got to be the priestly class, and only they could relate properly to God. Only they could enter the temple. Well, now every believer, every person who comes to faith in Jesus has God's spirit living within them. They can pray to God any moment of any day. They have entry into his presence moment by moment. Astounding. The church is also, thirdly, a holy nation. It's clearly a nation with a difference because it doesn't have political geographical boundaries like the nation of Israel. This nation is now spread across all the nations of the world. Christians are all those that have been granted the spirit who live in every country around the planet. This is a very different nation. And fourthly, it's those who trust in Jesus as God's, are God's special possession. We're treasured by God. 
Gentiles and Jews, all people, no matter what background, every tribe, language and nation, precious to God because they have received forgiveness through the blood of his son. And you might say, what is the purpose of this multifaceted, some might say ragtag bunch that God is gathering from all the nations of the world? What are they to do? Why is God putting them together? We'll notice in the second half of verse 9 that we exist, at least in part, to declare the praises of God. And the word praises here is more literally excellencies. It's talking about God's character, his perfection. In this particular passage, the word mercy comes up a lot, especially verse 10. So God's amazing mercy shown to us in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus, that he would forgive our sins and make us right before him and wipe the slate clean. God's excellencies declare his praises. Notice that believers were simply those who were sinners. We've been taken out of darkness, the darkness of our rebellion and placed into his wonderful light, saved through trusting in his son. In verse 10, we were those who were not God's people, but now we've been shown mercy. I mean, this transformation in the identity of those who were no one, who were not a people, to being the people of God is simply stunning. It's so amazing that those who are included in this group should just declare God's praises constantly. It should just be bursting out of us. That's Peter's argument in this passage. We've not simply been saved for our own enjoyment, not saved to stay in a holy huddle. We're saved to declare God's praises, to tell others about his wonderful love for them as well, the love that's been shown to us in Jesus. And we do that best when we understand that we've been brought into a body. The you at the start of verse 9 is plural, which is made really clear by those four descriptors of who we are. We're not a holy person, we're a holy nation. You're not a royal priest, you're part of a royal priesthood. And so as we apply this final section of our passage, I want to ask you if you have this sense of belonging to God's people. Even this church. You sense yourself as a part of this church community. Or do you feel tonight that you're somehow out on the fringes? That you don't really relate or connect to everyone? Or maybe you feel like you're a part of things and you connect and you have good friends here, but you don't really feel like you're part of the overflowing service or the praise of God that issues in all kinds of actions, that you're somehow just sitting on the sideline observing. What would it look like to be fully invested and connected with a group of people? Well, it was a cold Friday night in May of 1994, when a group of uh, 30 people aged between about 16 and 24 uh, gathered together in my parents' double garage. Thankfully, we lived out on five acres, so we could make a lot of noise. And we had had a camp where we'd drawn together the young adults that were in our church at the time. There wasn't much happening. There wasn't any sense of cohesion. And we said at this camp, we want to start a group. We want to meet every Friday night. And as we come together, we're going to read God's word. We're going to hear it taught. We're going to pray. We're going to care for each other in the ups and downs of life. We're going to eat food together. We're going to hang out together. We're going to be. And people said, yeah, I want to be part of that. And as that first Friday night then grew into 15 years of Friday nights meeting in that double garage, 
and ending up with 60 people crammed in like sardines in there. We did all those things together. And I can tell you, it had a big impact on a lot of people in that group. There was a number of pastors, a number of marriages that came out of that group. Uh, my wife, Christine, and I were part of that. It had a massive impact on us. And it issued in service. It wasn't just a great sense of belonging, but the people that came to that group then committed to teaching Sunday school in the morning, even though they were part of the evening service. They committed to going as a group on beach mission so they could declare the praises of God at Lake Tabari, and so on and so forth. God was at work doing things as we committed to one another. And I can tell you it had a lasting effect. Uh, we weren't around last Sunday morning because we've been meeting up for the last 20 years with five other couples out of that group who all married from within the youth group. And four of those families are in ministry and we get together at the end of October every year and we encourage one another. And some of those families don't see each other from one year to the next, but I can tell you the bond is just as strong as it was in 1994. And that's because we'd invested in each other over such a long time. And so it's a powerful thing. It started off with six couples and now we're overrun with 17 kids, so it's not quite as fun anymore. No, no, it's great. But it's very different. But we've seen God at work in his faithfulness to us. Now, I don't share that to say that that's the ideal group that's ever happened. You might be part of one yourself. You may have seen that a number of times. It's been happening over and over the last two millennia. But what I want to say to you about that story is this. It's only come about through a lot of effort and investment in relationship and friendship. Sometimes we go to church and we say, well, you know, I don't really feel like I connect here or belong, or I don't have a lot of close friends. And then we say, well, are you part of a home group? Oh, no, I'm not part of a home group. Oh, do you hang around and connect with people afterwards? Oh, no, I find that hard, so I go off straight afterwards. Now, I'm not picking on you if that's you, but I'm just saying that we need to spend time to make such things happen. It doesn't just happen. There's a lot of energy and effort that goes into building community and connection, that sense of belonging. And we need to give ourselves to that. You know, this sense of community that all Christians should have as they do life together, as they declare the praises of God in service to him together, is something that we need to give ourselves to. You live in an individualistic age that's just going to tell you about what you might do tomorrow in your job or how you might enjoy your personal time on the weekend. And this sense of belonging to a community, of being beholden to other people, of wanting to invest in their life and be there to serve them more than you can be concerned for yourself is just completely countercultural. But that's the picture that the New Testament gives us over and over and over. And so I want to challenge you tonight. I know some of you are highly committed to that already. And if so, don't take that for granted. Continue to invest. Continue to do that with all your strength. But let me say to those who feel like they're out on the edges to give more of yourself so that you might have that connection and belonging that we so often long for. Please don't see yourself as an island if you're a Christian here tonight. You are not. <laughs> And so often we think, well, you know, I chose to come to this church and I'll choose to go somewhere else if I want to. Yeah, humanly speaking, you might have. But that's forgetting that God is a sovereign God. 
He has placed you here at this moment. He's placed you in this family of believers. And he is doing something as he brings you to any group that you are a part of. And we need to see his bigger picture and start engaging with the community that God has called us among. Stop seeing yourself as an individual, but see yourself as part of God's wonderful family. Love your family. Because you know, when you get to eternity, all the things that we chase after each day will have all disappeared. And the thing that will be left is Christ and his people gathered around him. That's most important then, isn't it? That's the thing that I want to give my life to on this earth. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you might help us to see tonight that we are a part of your church, your family, that has a distinct and clear identity in Christ. We pray that you might help us to see the importance of placing great value on your church, of investing our time in meeting with your people, serving with them, partly for our own benefit and growth, but also that we might serve and care for those around us that you've placed us with. Help us to see us as you see us, not as our world would grant us an identity today. Lord, we thank you for your gathering. Help us to find great sense of connection and service within it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.